Hi, this is Anishka Fernandopoli. I hope this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button under my picture on dharmaseed.org or go to my website, anushkaf.org, A-N-U-S-H-K-A-F.org, and click on donate. Thanks. I appreciate your support. So for many people, their entrance into uh, interest in meditation or a dharma practice uh, comes from some experience of difficulty or suffering or trials and tribulations of life. I think this has been among the top uh, reasons why people have gone to practice and to centers and monasteries and uh, teachings and teachers like this since uh, thousands of years ago. So oftentimes it might have been the breakup of a relationship or uh, the death of someone close to you, diagnosis of some sickness, uh, loss of possessions, or some other difficulty that happened in one's life that it's, it's difficult to bear. It feels like beyond the usual set of tools that you have from what you've learned in school or from family or friends or self-help books or TV shows, things like that. And even if you came for the retreat for other reasons, if you came to practice for other reasons, the structure of practice itself pretty quickly reveals this aspect of our life, of the difficulty or uh, strain or stress that's there inherent in the human body uh, and that also is uh, easily seen in the way that we relate to uh, life. I see as evidence of this the high population in the very back of the room and along the edges right now of uh, chairs that suggest that there's been some experience of body dukkha uh, that has uh, driven the populace to the corners, which is... (laughs) I have uh, compassion and understanding for that. So that's uh, what I want to talk to you about is this uh, aspect of our lives and experience which is called dukkha. And also uh, some understanding, more broadly speaking, of like what we're doing here in this practice. What is the dharma? What is this practice? And How can this be helpful to us in this endeavor? So you could say there's a way on on retreat and in the the teachings of the Dharma in which we're trying to understand uh, our life at a different level than we usually do. And the way that we usually learn things is through understanding uh, patterns, through observing patterns and understanding patterns is how we learn many different things. Language and uh, physical skills, uh, games, sports even. So there's a way in which we're trying to understand something that is there to be seen in every moment, but that we don't have the uh, knowledge of at this point, which reveals some underlying structure about what is true about what we call reality or about ourselves, uh, which we don't usually see. 
if we understand this to the extent that we understand this and can live in harmony with this, in alignment with this, then we are able to alleviate huge amounts of this strain, stress, suffering from our lives. And the extent to which we don't see this and we end up being out of tune with this, out of harmony with this, we end up having more difficulty. So the a metaphor that I like uh, for this is that there are laws in the physical world that uh, we can understand, but that we're not born knowing. Uh, so, for, for example, uh, understanding of the law of gravity. So uh, small children, babies, don't know about this, and sometimes you see them maybe experimenting or checking it out. So maybe they'll be in their high chair and they'll be like dropping something off and see like what happens. Like, oh yeah, it falls to the ground, right? And then what happens if you do it over here? So the same thing happens, it falls, you know. And then, like, what happens if you're not looking? (laughs) The same thing happens, right? So then, after a while, you get the pattern, you understand. Like, oh, if you try and place things in midair, then uh, likely they're going to fall to the ground. And uh, you then can learn to live in alignment with that. So that if you want to place something somewhere, uh, it's better not to place this glass of water in midair. It's better to place it here, knowing it will be inextricably drawn to the earth for some reason that I don't even need to understand. So I don't need to know the mathematical formula for it. Uh, I don't need to know who is running this uh, or anything like that. Right? <laughs> if anyone is running it at all. you know, uh, I just need to be able to observe and understand this and then live in alignment with this. And then there's less messes in my life, less spilled water and broken glass and uh, cause less of a mess for Eowyn here and the sound system and everything. And then also, if by chance sometime uh, it happens that something gets, you know, like knocked off like that and it falls, then also, oh, I understood the pattern already. So then I can just pick it up, you know, I kind of knew, even though if I forgot for a moment that that happened. Uh, so it doesn't have to be a problem. I can sort of quickly deal with that without the added uh, personalization of that experience. So I don't need to add on a sort of like, why me? Why now? Why? You know? <laughs> to why things fall, because it's just part of the way things are in nature, right? It's not personal. It's not personal or specific only to me, even if I might feel that at some point. So the the Dhamma is teaching us about these aspects of uh, the way things work that are there for us to observe, but that we don't have the uh, understanding of uh, for the most part. We don't have the understanding of them in a stable, steady way uh, that can allow us to avoid these messes and spilled stuff and broken glass in our life. So our practice of mindfulness is uh, tuning in, using this different way of knowing. And it's, it's a different way of knowing than our usual thinking about things. It's a way of knowing that is using a different faculty than our intellectual faculty. It's using the faculty of observation, of awareness itself. Maybe another uh, metaphor for this is uh, I play music. I've played guitar for a long time, um, and I played some piano before. So I learned some kind of music theory. And 
there actually is a structure to different kinds of music. So even in, let's say, like Western rock music or uh, Middle Eastern music or Indian music, there are different structures to how uh, songs are constructed. And I remember when I first learned this uh, when I was playing guitar when I was in uh, like grade school, middle school, uh, I was shocked to find that all of these songs that were like my favorite songs, and I thought they were each so different and special, had basically the same chord progression, you know? Like one, four, five, right? If that means something to some of you. Or maybe one, four, five, six minor, maybe two minor thrown in somewhere, you know? Uh, so there's a structure to that, and, and it was revealed, and then it was able to play all these other different songs uh, from knowing that. Uh, and then it was easier to pick up uh, different uh, tunes and uh, understand when I heard a song like what was happening, you know, because I understood something in the underlying structure of that. And then more recently, uh, I was playing music with a friend of mine, and she has a bass guitar. And I thought, like, well, I'll just start playing the bass. You know, she could play the guitar part, I'll play the bass. But I hadn't been paying attention to what the bass line was in different songs, so I kind of assumed it was just like thumping on the top of the chord. And then when she showed me some of the, the bass lines, it was much more complicated than I thought. Like it was actually much harder, and there was this whole other structure of melody going on underneath the song that I hadn't tuned into. And then once I started to tune into that, to listen to that, I could hear that in other songs. And it was actually quite beautiful to be able to follow that and recognize that. So we're, we're trying to tune in to this different level of our lives, this different level of experience. And the usual level that we're tuned into in our life is about um, the story of me. So it's about me and my experience, what's happening to me, uh, good stuff that's happening to me, bad stuff that might happen to me, um, good stuff that used to happen to me, uh, <laughs> bad things other people have done to me, um, and you know, this is a little bit of a simplified version, but <laughs> if you honestly categorized your thoughts for the last day, probably they could fit into those, <laughs> those categories right? in some kind of generic way. Right? So we live in this uh, kind of illusion, this way in which we, we are the center of the world and we're tuned into everything only as far as it might have a good or bad effect on ourselves. Uh, primarily that. And in our search for happiness and well-being, we're tuned into primarily seeking out what seems like a, a pleasant, good experience for ourselves in the physical body, uh, in the realm of taste, in the realm of sound, uh, sight, smell, so on. So this flows into meditation too, where for uh, most people, when they consider something a good meditation, it's a meditation in which they've had pleasant experience. So not too much physical pain, uh, good states of mind, uh, some quiet, some calm, something like that. Uh, and then bad meditation is that which uh, has physical pain or a lot of thoughts or bad thoughts that we don't like, uh, sounds we don't like. So some of this underlying structure that can be revealed is understanding that uh, inherent in this experience of life is that 
everything is rapidly changing. That which we call ourselves and all of experience is the rapid succession of different sense experiences. And that the shift of these sense experiences is not under our control. So because this is the case then, there is a a way in which experience itself is really very uh, fragile and unreliable, uh, particularly as a place to seek out some lasting place for grounded satisfaction and well-being. So this is uh, what is meant by uh, dukkha, and this is uh, one of the primary teachings that the Buddha gave was about understanding this noble truth of dukkha, and then understanding its cause, and then this path of practice as the way to eradicate that, to free ourselves from this. So here's some from the words of the Buddha. Now this is the noble truth of dukkha. Birth is dukkha. Aging is dukkha. Death is dukkha. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair are dukkha. Association with the unloved is dukkha. Separation from the loved is dukkha. Not getting what is wanted is dukkha. In short, the five clinging aggregates are dukkha. So some of this is more obvious and is probably related to some of the reasons that you might have gotten catapulted into this uh, unusual situation of silent meditation retreat, Uh, this experience of death or sickness or aging, uh, not getting what you like, uh, separation from what you love, and then uh, proximity to what you don't love. And all of this stuff is playing out for all of us in all different situations, no matter how old you are or how wealthy you are or how much good fortune, good looks, anything you have, like you are not immune from these factors. So there's a way in which we seek our happiness within the world of experiential reality but it's inherently not going to be able to satisfy us in a lasting way, right? It's always changing, changing, changing. So usually the way in which we relate to the world is that, okay, I'm feeling dissatisfied, but the problem is external. The problem is uh, the sound that's coming from the window. Like, that should, they should fix that sound. Why haven't they fixed that? Like, why aren't they doing anything about that? Just someone shut the window already, right? Uh, Or the problem is uh, the physical pain in your body. Like, oh, if I could just design a better cushion and find a different way to sit and, you know, machinating about that. Uh, The problem is external. It's the sound of the person who's breathing next to you or fidgeting next to you. If only they were more still, my meditation would be great. the problem is the teachers up here. They're not saying the right things or um, wearing the right clothes or uh, you know, any number of other, other things. 
So I remember when I first came uh, to retreats like this, and I did some retreats here, and then uh, did this long retreat, three-month retreats here, and then I went to uh, Sri Lanka, and I spent a couple years doing practice in some monasteries and uh, retreat centers. And in all of these cases, uh, I grew to appreciate that the very structure of the practice center or the monastery is basically designed to reveal a dukkha, you might think it's causing dukkha, but actually it's, it's just revealing it. <laughs> it's revealing that which is already there, but which in our regular life we squirm away from. You know, we can kind of like uh, gloss over because we seek pleasure in some form. So if you have physical discomfort uh, in your body, usually you move or uh, do something else or take something to quickly alleviate that as much as possible. Here in the form of sitting, you're taking some courageous vow, really, to be with whatever it is that arises in the body and mind during this period. And then if that's something that is painful, uh, in the form of trying not to squirm away, trying to be steady, uh, it's very helpful to reveal the ways in which there is dukkha, there is pain, there is stress, there is difficulty inherent in the human body. There's no position that's going to be permanently comfortable. Even if you were to lie down, then after you lie down for a while, you'd start to feel pressure on those points of contact. And that would also be dukkha. So dukkha can be translated different ways. Uh, Strain, stress, suffering, unsatisfactoriness. incapable of satisfying. But we don't see this clearly, and so then we look in the wrong places, basically, for some relief. There's some uh, distortions that the Buddha talked about that we uh, experience that are part of our misunderstanding about the way things are. So we don't see the way in which Things are impermanent. We take things that are impermanent to be permanent. We take things to be pleasant that are actually painful. Uh, Example of this is uh, we think that desire itself is a good thing. Whereas when you look a little bit more closely at that state of mind, uh, it is also some state of being out of alignment of stress, of suffering. We take the insubstantial experiences of the body to be ourself, and we identify with that as some permanent, solid, controlling entity that when you look, you can't really find, actually. And the fourth distortion is uh, it's said that we take the unbeautiful to be beautiful sometimes. So we take that which is prone to decay uh, and put it on a pedestal and uh, don't see it for what it is. So these distortions are all things that happen in the mind. Uh, They're aspects of our perception, our lack of perception of these patterns uh, of what's true. 
And you might have noticed now, having been on a retreat for a little while, that uh, the range of thoughts that can come up is quite vast. And uh, the mind itself actually has really no uh, limits to what it will think. So the mind has no shame, sometimes like they say, right? Uh, the ridiculousness of thoughts that the mind will come up with. All kinds of inappropriate or uh, humorous or uh, childish or, uh, yeah, outrageous types of things. So in this way, too, the practice reveals the ways in which, yeah, maybe all our thoughts are not to be believed. Maybe every single thought that goes through our mind is not uh, so reliable to to take take our own thinking with a grain of salt. So one way that you can uh, see this that is commonly uh, manifests on retreat is the way in which we have uh, projections onto other people. So you walking around silently, you're not talking to people, but maybe there's someone who has started to annoy you a little. You, know, you, don't, you don't like the way that they walk or they put their shoes the place you want to put your shoes or uh, you don't like the way they chew your food or something. And basically you've, you've projected onto them, we call this a vipassana vendetta, negative uh, thing on them. And then whenever you see this person who you've never talked to around, suddenly it's like, oh, you again. (laughs) So the mind has decided this person is like an enemy in some way and then uh, is projecting out like, oh, that guy, oh, man, don't sit next to me. And meanwhile, you don't even know anything about this person. They're they're actually like just minding their own business, like (laughs) trying to get by here (laughs) and... uh, be as mindful as possible too. And then of course you have the other side which is the uh, Vipassana romance where uh, also some hapless individual has caught your eye. Uh, also they were minding their own business doing their walking meditation but uh, something about them you like and then uh, from that the mind kind of conspires to create this uh, image of the perfect person. So then you like the way they walk, you like their socks, uh, you like uh, the way they mindfully drink tea, you know, you're sort of tracking them, you think they're like really good meditator, and then you go into different uh, levels of fantasy, right? Where the mind is creating these ideas of how you're going to talk to them afterwards, and you're going to uh, get along well, and uh, exchange information, and then maybe meet up, and go on dates, and get married, and have them... <laughs> Mindful apartment together and, uh, you know, all this stuff, right? And, uh, and actually you're making it all up. <laughs> this is the important thing, what I want you to understand. Is you're making it all up and we spend so much of our time actually living in these fantasy worlds of uh, creating hell realms and creating realms of beauty. Uh, and we're not actually connected to what is in fact happening. We're not seeing people as they are. We're not seeing ourselves as we are. So we use the basic grounding of connecting to the body to help reveal some of these underlying structures of the way things are. And even the fact that you can't make your body manifest or behave in the ways that you want it to, uh, reveals this, reveals this dukkha, you know, this, this difficulty, this uh, unreliability of experience and of the body itself.
Now, if we're able to be with the body just as it is, not identifying with it, not taking it to be me or mine in some way, then it doesn't actually have to be a problem in the same way. As I've said in the morning also, that there's a way in which um, we are also just part of nature. We're like an organic manifestation of nature in this animal body. And so we get sleepy, we get hungry, uh, we itch, we get cold, we get hot. And it doesn't really have to be a problem. But our belief in this entity as who we are in some substantial and lasting way uh, causes us a lot of suffering and difficulty. So the Buddha himself talked to, uh, to a lot of people during his uh, teachings and about the different aspects of life that are out of our control. And yeah, there's some that are very basic, profound, difficult ones, like that our loved ones uh, can get sick and can die. And it's a very painful thing to have those close to you get sick uh, and die. It's a very painful thing to have uh, breakups with people. It's a painful thing to have some loss of your job or income uh, or for you yourself to get sick and to experience the difficulties of aging, the loss of your own faculties and strength. So the Buddha says, uh, the tears that you have shed in wandering all this long time are greater than all of the water in the great oceans. So long have you experienced the death of mother, father, brother, sister, son, daughter, relatives, loss of wealth, loss of disease, crying, weeping, uh, being joined with what is displeasing and being separated from what is pleasing. So long have you experienced this strain, stress, loss, even swelling the cemeteries, enough to become disenchanted with all fabricated things, enough to be released. And yet, there's often a part of us that's like, let me try one more time. It's got to be just around the corner, the relationship that's going to do it for good, or the job, or the amount of money that I need, the status, uh, the position of the body in meditation that's going to be perfect. And notice how if you ever have some practice period that's actually like fairly easeful, then quickly we go back to trying to machinate that. Like, what did I eat before then? Uh, how did I sit? Uh, which direction was I facing? You know, all the things. We're trying so hard and so poignantly to recreate these pleasant experiences for ourselves. And yet this too is unreliable. Now, in this last quote that I mentioned, um, he's referring to this endless round of rebirth, which um, for some people, they don't uh, understand that or relate to that. But you could even consider in your own life a type of endless round of rebirth that you've gone through in uh, this seeming life. 
So consider, for example, um, all the different places you've lived, all the beds that you've slept in. You know, they sort of take birth in the morning when you wake up in this bed, in this apartment, uh, in this location. Think about all the different uh, jobs or classrooms you have taken birth in for that period of time. And then those around you are your family, are your coworkers, are your colleagues, uh, your fellow students. And then you live a life in that realm you know, with people who you like, people who you dislike, some amount of problems and difficulties, stress. And then eventually you pass away from that and then take birth in another realm, another classroom, another job, another apartment, another relationship. So when we think about it like that, we have gone through many, many different rounds of this. And in these rounds, there's a way in which the patterns of suffering uh, replicate themselves. And there may be always those who are nice to us and those who are not nice to us. Those situations that seem fair and unfair. In the broader realm, uh, you could consider the rebirth that happens in the country, politically. Right? You take birth in different realms that are pleasing to you or unpleasing to you, uh, with different characters who seem to be at the helm. And then in this birth, they're there for a while, and then they pass away. And in these ones, we like them, and in these ones, we dislike them. In these ones, it's favorable for us, and in these ones, it's unfavorable for us. So when you look at it in that way, you can relate to the the tears that we've shed in all of these different classrooms, apartments, uh, cars we've driven in, beds we've woken up in, political administrations that are there. Even in this lifetime, it seems like it's almost endless. And you can project out if you have, have continued life, which we never know if we have, of course that this will continue. So this doesn't suggest that it doesn't make sense to actually do work to improve the world or uh, work for good, uh, resist those who you feel are doing things that are unjust. Um, But also, if we seek permanent happiness and well-being in any of these states, in any of these temporary situations, It's not going to be a reliable place to rest our well-being. So the promise of this path is that there's the possibility of discovering a groundedness, a well-being, a sense of contentedness that's beyond all of these changing circumstances. And yet, at the same time, that is within them. So it's not through disappearing to a certain heavenly realm. It's not through even disconnecting uh, in some permanent way from the experiences of life, of relationships, or of uh, reading the news, or of uh, engaging with uh, systems of school or work. 
So the place to look is in our own mind, to understand the way that mind works and relates to experience. So a little more of the underlying code here then. In these changing experiences, uh, that which arises is perceived by us very quickly as either pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. And then equally quickly, we have some response to that that is really a habitual response of moving towards the pleasant, trying to seek it out, trying to grab after it, trying to move away from the unpleasant, trying to push it away, get rid of it, hate it, and then oftentimes not paying attention or kind of spacing out when it's something that's neutral. So get curious about this. Get curious about observing the way in which things change. Get curious about observing the way in which there is this dynamic of pleasant, grab it, unpleasant, push it away, neutral, lose interest. And see how that itself is actually incredibly tiring as a strategy for well-being and really doomed, like really sadly, poignantly doomed. So on a very small level with this, um, some of you might relate to this uh, regarding something very simple like your haircut. So I've had short hair for uh, a couple of years now and then I decided that I was gonna grow it out. And uh, as the hair starts to grow out, then um, it goes through many different phases, um, many of which are unsatisfactory. (laughs) And then, uh, you know, at certain points, I feel that they're unsatisfactory, and then I make an appointment with my uh, my hair person, who is actually a Dharma student and friend of mine who cuts my hair, and then, uh, you know, it's maybe for a week out. But then even in that week, it changes again. And then sometime during that week, I feel like, oh, maybe it's okay now. It actually, it actually looks like a haircut now. It's, it's okay, you know. So then maybe I'll think, oh, I don't need the haircut. I shouldn't bother her. So then I'll cancel it. And then a few days later, again, it's in some other configuration, you know, of like sticking out in different ways. And um, usually around that time, I decide to self, um, self-fix. So, uh, so I, like, how hard can it be? So then I'll take some scissors and try and, like, trim it up. But then, of course, I can't see the back and so on. Uh, and then, you know, usually at that point, then I'll, I'll uh, give up and call her and like make actually you know, make an appointment and go. But um, then she'll actually give me a really nice haircut. And I got a haircut just before I came here. Um, but particularly when it's very short, you can notice how immediately it starts to grow out again. Yeah. So she's trimmed it up nicely and uh, neatly. And then within a day or two, you know, particularly if your hair grows fast, it already is becoming unkempt again. In fact, I feel sometimes like as I'm walking out you know, <laughs> of the place, it's already coming, coming apart. You know? <laughs> so you see this more with short hair than long hair because you can, you can notice in some ways the uh, changes you know, more quickly. Right? Uh, and in some ways, this is true about kind of the structure of what we do here. It's like we simplify things so much so that uh, these small changes and uh, the ways in which uh, dukkha is, is baked into 
existence can be revealed, like you can notice it more rather than kind of glossing over it. So what can be our relationship to this? You know, really just to hold it with uh, compassion, like trying to understand this. Try to bear with it more and notice the way in which you have a habitual reaction of not wanting it to be like this. Notice the suffering of that. Like the strain in the mind of trying to want to find that perfect position or the strain in the mind of leaning into uh, wanting some pleasant experience. And notice how it doesn't actually change things too. So it's the leaning in the mind itself that is an aspect of uh, dukkha, of this difficulty. And we usually mistake the external circumstances to be the problem, whereas actually it's the internal leaning that's the problem itself. So another example of this, I um, took a a long uh, international flight a couple months ago and then um, went to Sri Lanka, so there was like, you know, 24 hours on the plane. And when I landed, I was very tired and, you know, day is night, night is day, time zones all messed up. So standing there waiting for the bags around the carousel and, um, you know, a lot of people are waiting, everyone wants to go home and notice like people start edging like a little closer to the carousel, you know, try and get to the bag and see if they're just coming and then a little closer a little closer until there's kind of like a group leaning in. And I notice like actually there's a lot of tension in that. You know, there's a tension in the body. There's a stress in like the slight jockeying that's happening. The entire crowd is kind of like uh, collapsing together onto the uh, baggage carousel. And most poignantly of all, it's not making the bag come any faster. <laughs> you know? Like it's just this lean, like it's really having no impact on when your bag comes out. Uh, So it's helpful to notice, notice these patterns of the leaning of the mind, you know, in that way. And and really just poignantly feel like, oh yeah, it's it's not actually changing circumstance. In fact, this itself is dukkha. This itself is uh, strain, is stress, is suffering. When you feel this strain, this stress, this suffering also, um, recognize this as part of a shared human experience. So it's very easy for us to label this as something that is a problem. My life, uh, my meditation would be better if this was not here. Right? My life would be better if this was not here. If I can get rid of this, then uh, everything will be okay. Except that then so basically something else will come up. So the extent to which one can open up to and be with this sense of dukkha and then inquire into the causes of it, which can be seen to be this kind of leaning that we have in the mind.
So stepping out of the way in which we tell the story of ourselves over and over again, uh, of being the star of the show, and particularly notice when you're telling a story of suffering, of some suffering that you are experiencing that you feel like it's only me who's experiencing this. I'm the only one. And in this um, practice, there's two ways in which that can get broken up. So one is through feeling into with more and more detail uh, what is the direct experience of this. So for example, with physical pain, uh, breaking through the idea that my knee hurts, my back hurts, everyone else is sitting so still and steady and perfectly, and I'm the only one who has this pain. Actually letting go of those thoughts in some ways, seeing through them and feeling into what is this experience I'm calling back pain? What is it in this moment, in this moment, in this moment? So becoming very intimate in a very detailed way uh, with what is true about experience and then seeing it as changing, seeing it as not being inherently under your control and being not you in this way. So the sensations are not you, are not yours. Even the knower of those sensations is not you and is not yours. Sajan Mahabua, who is a a Thai forest master, said, whenever there is a center in the knowing, there is dukkha. So if there's a knowing and there's an identification, which is this, you know, some center in some way or another, then dukkha is present. So check it out, see if that's, that's true in your experience. The other way sometimes it can be helpful is, is to open up kind of wide angle. So we have some experience, we're kind of ruminating on something that happened to us or is happening to us and kind of roiling in it. And uh, I've taken to doing this kind of reflection when, whenever something happens of like uh, the way in which whatever is happening to me is also happening to someone else somewhere else. And not just one person, it actually is probably happening to millions of people. So that can kind of take out the realm of uh, personalization, the sort of like, why me, why now part of it. So for example, uh, if you ever get a flat tire, you are not the only person who has a flat tire that day. You're actually part of the fellowship of flat tires. <laughs> At that very moment, like pop, 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 right? All over the world, bicycles and cars and trucks, you know, tires are popping at every single second, right? So then it makes it a little easier, like, all right, by the side of the road, sitting in a puddle, fixing this, calling mechanic, whatever you have to do, you know, patching the tire, you know. If you ever have back pain, you're part of the fellowship of back pain, Fellowship of back pain is strong in this very hall. (laughs) Um, But also it's strong across time, across nationality. In fact, the Buddha himself had back pain. So he also was part of this fellowship at some point. Uh, The fellowship of people who uh, have a sick parent, a sick and aging parent. This also is one that has universal as all of us are aging, as everyone's parents are aging, uh, if your parents have not passed away, then uh, you eventually become part of this fellowship too, the challenges of that. 
the fellowship of people who, whose children are not behaving in the way you would you'd like them to. That's also a very strong fellowship. <laughs> and that one, interestingly, we've been on both sides of, right? At some point, we might have been the children who were not behaving <laughs> as was desired by someone. Anything that happens to you, you know, anything that has happened to you, anything that will happen to you, is part of human experience, and you're part of some collective group of people who is experiencing this. So even there's a way in which you can feel like, oh, let, may, I, may I be able to bear this uh, as part of this fellowship? May I increase my ability to be with this, with grace, with courage, uh, with steadiness of heart and mind, uh, for the benefit of myself and for all those right, who might be having difficulty with this at this time. So this is another way of kind of taking the center out of dukkha, the center of me, and me and my problems, me and mine. So this is the noble truth of dukkha. Birth is dukkha, aging is dukkha, death is dukkha. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. Association with the unbeloved, separation from the loved, not getting what is wanted, in short, the five clinging aggregates. So if you are experiencing any of these things, if you have experienced any of these things today with physical discomfort, mental discomfort, memories of difficulty and loss, then you also are part of this human fellowship of dukkha. And you're in a great place to learn to be with it. This entire practice center, all of the practice is designed to help you to see through these underlying patterns. And then to be able to bear that with greater grace, wisdom, and love, which will benefit you for the rest of your life and also everyone who you will encounter in the future. So thank you for your practice today. So we can just sit together for a moment. As you connect with the body at the moment, you can feel if there's areas of discomfort there. You can recognize the pain that's there. And know that this pain in the body is something that is also shared by all different human beings at different points. Even all animals have pain. can look at the state of mind that's there. can recognize if there is some difficulty with that. Whatever this state of mind is, whatever the weather pattern is that's passing through, also this is part of the human experience. 
part of nature. It doesn't have to be identified with as you or yours or something that's happening to you. And even the nor of this itself. Whenever there's a center in the knowing, there's dukkha. We just allow the knowing of this to be as it is, without additional add-ons, adornments, identifications. May we see into the patterns, the codes that are the causes of suffering and which replicate suffering in our minds and hearts through our sincere efforts here. May we all know complete liberation from suffering and the causes of suffering. period for walking practice and then can come back for the last metta sitting of the evening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.